Our scripture reading this evening is Psalm 99. We read this psalm for the sake of what it emphasizes about God's uh, transcendence, His holiness, His glory, the way in which He is other than us. But I encourage you also to notice as we read this, though that is what we're going to be emphasizing, how the psalm is also at the same time confident in God's goodness and favor toward His people. It's that combination of truths that we want to uh, meditate upon this evening. Psalm 99. The Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim, let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion, He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name, holy is He. The King in His might loves justice, you have established equity, you have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God, worship at His footstool, holy is He. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord and he answered them. In the pillar of the cloud, he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies and the statute that he gave them. O Lord, our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Exalt the Lord, our God, and worship at his holy mountain. For the Lord, our God, is holy. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, as we are gathered together around the teaching of your word, we desire to grow in our faith and confidence in how you have revealed yourself and made yourself known. As we begin our study of the Lord's Prayer in particular, we ask you to enable us to be shaped and formed by these things. You You know better than we do the ways in which our hearts so easily wander from you or pray to you selfishly or in ways different from what your word instructs. And so we pray that by your spirit, you would change us through this, the teaching of your holy word. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Our lesson from the Heidelberg Catechism this evening is Lord's Day 46, as we now begin the portion of the catechism that will be working through the petitions of the Lord's Prayer. This is our confession of faith in response to God's word. We read these question and answers responsively. Lord's Day 46 of the Catechism. What or why has Christ commanded us to address God as our Father? To awaken in us at the very beginning of our prayer what should be basic to our prayer. A childlike reverence and trust that through Christ God has become our Father and will much less refuse to give us what we ask in faith than will our parents refuse us the things of this life. Why the words, who is in heaven? These words teach us not to think of God's heavenly majesty in an earthly way and to expect from His almighty power everything needed for body and soul. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, this evening we begin to work through the words of the Lord's Prayer, and in doing this, we are experiencing something that unites us with God's people through the centuries. 
not only because the Lord's Prayer, of course, is used by God's people, but because it has been the practice, not just in our catechism, but in many others from other traditions of the Christian church, to seek to be shaped, formed in the Christian faith by studying the petitions of this prayer in particular. Many catechisms are structured around the Apostles' Creed, the Ten Commandments, and the Lord's Prayer. So this work we are doing is something we share uh, with many different churches, many Christians through the centuries and around the world. We treat this prayer in particular because it is the words given to us by our Lord Jesus Christ in the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, on your outline, I'm going to talk about this a bit later, but I want to highlight this up front because this is what gives us our motivation, our energy, if anyone feels like they need energy right now, this is our motivation, our energy as we embark upon this study. Under section three of your outline, letter A, we have those words from Matthew 6 verse 9. Jesus said, contrasting with wrong ways of praying, he said, pray then like this. These are words that are given to us. And it is the fact that they are given to us that affects how we learn from them. It's why we think deeply about what it means to pray these things. The prayer is very short, and it is the words that Jesus uh, personally and purposefully gave to us as the church. So I hope that will uh, motivate, encourage us as we begin this work this evening. To your outline. Our catechism is simply working through the words of the Lord's Prayer, so we begin with our Father who is in heaven. Number one, childlike reverence and trust. We begin our prayers with a confession of faith in the good news that we are God's children. Question answer 120 of the catechism. Why has Christ commanded us to address God as our Father? The answer is this, to awaken in us at the very beginning of our prayer what should be basic to our prayer, a childlike reverence and trust that through Christ, God has become our Father. In that simple phrase, there is much theology, and much theology that that, uh, brings to the forefront themes that we've been noticing throughout our time in the Catechism. Letter A, we are God's children because we are united to Christ by faith and are adopted in Him. The key theological phrase in these words is, through Christ. Christ is God's Son. We are united to Jesus by faith. When you put your faith in Him, you are connected with Him. He is the head, you are the body. And one of the benefits of that being united to Jesus is adoption. Romans 8, verses 14 and 15. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. That adoption is a gift we receive in Christ, and notice how in the words of the Apostle Paul there, it's a, uh, it is shaping how we address God. Because Christ is God's Son, we are united to Him, God is then our Father. When the New Testament speaks this way, it's speaking this way in a way that is grounded in how God always spoke to His people. Letter B, this adoption restores and fulfills the relationship with God that we were intended to have at creation. Now, we want to be careful how we say this. In many ways, what the New Testament says about adoption is new. There is a new closeness, a new clarity about the relationship being revealed because of Christ, who Christ is and what Christ has done. But that new clarity being revealed is new clarity about something that was always the case. 
The prophet Hosea, for example, when it speaks of the Exodus, God says of Israel, out of Egypt I called my son. Israel was to view themselves as being God's children. And that was because from the very beginning of creation, God viewed human beings as being his children. And what sin broke was that relationship. And so the story being told here is not just of, it's not a, a, a new idea in the New Testament, but it's rather a new fulfilling of what God had always intended. Uh, Luke, for example, in his genealogy of Jesus, when he goes back to Adam, calls Adam the son of God. Now, this is uh, pretty um, you know, clear in sort of an instinctive way. God created us. There's that kind of relationship of the father to his children, but it's also specifically the language of the Old Testament. God views his creatures in this way, and what he's done in Christ is restored us to that relationship with him. That is, adoption is revealing God's character, who he is, how he uh, how he views us as his people is revealing his very, his very nature as our God. Therefore, let us see, this doctrine is a tremendous comfort for us as God's covenant people. When we pray to God as Father, this is not just an abstraction, like a way of illustrating, for example, that God is the source of all things. We can imagine ways of talking about this theologically where someone would still have an idea of God being far away, uninvolved, still referring to him as father in the sense of being the source of creation. That is not what is being described here. What is being described here is is the covenant closeness of God, that he binds us to himself, that he is near to us and that we are near to him, that, that God is from the beginning revealed as one who is relational, who desires to have the relationship with his people. The language of I will be your God and you will be my people. The language of God being with Israel throughout the Old Testament scriptures. It's not just an abstraction, God as the source. It is rather revealing something about his relationship with us. And for that reason, it is a comfort. It's a comfort for another reason. That this comes to us as a matter of promise. The Lord's Prayer is not, first of all, an overflowing of something that you already feel. I cannot emphasize this enough. I'm going to say it over and over through our series in the Lord's Prayer. You're going to think I've emphasized it enough. I'm telling you I can't emphasize it enough. We think of prayer, we think of song as being the overflowing of what we're already feeling. And there are times in the Christian life where God feels far away. And so when we pray the Lord's Prayer, you might think, what am I doing then? If I'm praying to God as Father in a way that's meant to be about childlike reverence and trust, and I'm not feeling that way, what am I doing? Well, you are praying something that God has promised you. Jesus gives you these words, and his giving you the words is not, first of all, saying, this is how you're going to feel all the time. When he gives you these words, he is saying, this is who God is for you before you feel anything. This is who God is for you, regardless of how you feel. So whether it be because of difficult providences, whether it be because of uh, um, um, mental, emotional burdens in life, whatever it might be that would have you feeling otherwise does not change this. This is his promise. And one more way it's important to say that this is a comfort. I want to emphasize the language in the catechism. Let's, well, we'll start at the beginning here, or in the middle. 
a childlike reverence and trust that through Christ God has become our Father and will much less refuse to give us what we ask in faith than will our parents refuse us the things of this life. The Catechism sets forth parents as a positive example of providing and says God will provide even more. That is, He will refuse to provide much less than parents would refuse to provide. I want to emphasize that much less because parents sin. For many of us, the Father, as, as, a, as an image, as a way of speaking of God, is troubling because of fathers that have sinned against us. And so I want to highlight here that on the one hand, there is a positive comparison being made, the goodness of parents, but in a way that is emphasizing the much more of God, that God is the perfect Father. He is, he, he is, he is the sinless Father, the Father who cares for His own perfectly. And so the fact that fathers fail, that sin is real, does not take away from this. It is rather something like the point that we can identify what sinfulness is in contrast with the goodness of God as our Heavenly Father. This is Christ's promise to you when He gives you these words in the Lord's Prayer, that God in Christ has become your Father. Second, Heavenly Majesty We begin our prayers with a reminder that God is holy and transcendent. A reminder of the distinction between God as creator and us as his creatures. We speak of God not only as our father, emphasizing closeness, nearness, relationship, but as our father who is in heaven. And our catechism is saying there's a kind of of balancing of truths or a maintaining of truths side by side that is happening here. Letter A. While the Bible is clear about God's covenantal nearness to His people, this never detracts from His transcendent holiness. As much as the Scriptures emphasize nearness and this relational quality to our connection with our Heavenly Father, it always does so while at the very same time emphasizing, indeed celebrating, God's otherness. That He is different from us. He is the Creator. We are the creatures. I emphasize here, you can pull from any number of psalms, but hear the language of Psalm 99. The Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim, let the earth quake. Verse 1, emphasizing that there's something about who God is that means people should tremble, should fear before Him. He is the creator of all things, the Holy One, the one who is in, many, in, in so many ways separate from us, other than us, distant from us in the sense of not being a creature. Verse 2, the Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is He. And so our catechism says this, why the words who is in heaven? And I'm going to encourage you, I'm going to read this answer again, but hear this in the context of those words from Psalm 99. These words teach us not to think of God's heavenly majesty in an earthly way and to expect from his almighty power everything needed for body and soul. Letter B, the catechism is warning us of a very real temptation in our thinking and feeling about God. These words teach us, quoting the catechism again, not to think of God's heavenly majesty in an earthly way. We are constantly tempted to do this. 
to have ways of thinking about God that sort of uh, pull him into the creation as simply being a powerful being in the world. Like us, just a lot stronger. Like us, just a lot more holy and more powerful. That language of in heaven is emphasizing separation, distance, otherness. And the Catechism says with those words, with Jesus placing those words up front, he's warning us about turning God into something earthly. Now, here, here's the, maybe we can even say the irony of this. What did the Catechism just say? We should not think of God's heavenly majesty in an earthly way. And yet Jesus just told us to pray to him as our Father. Is that not telling us to think of God's heavenly majesty in an earthly way? Right? Fathers are an earthly reality that we know, and with those words we are told to think of God in that way. Well, both of these things are true. The Bible speaks, we call this speaking um, anthropomorphically, so speaking of God as being like a person, like a human, in order to make him known, to reveal things about him. The Bible in this way speaks in the way of analogy, saying God is like this. What we have to maintain is that the analogy is saying something true about God, but it's saying it as an analogy. It's saying something true about God while acknowledging that we cannot fully comprehend, wrap our minds around God, that God remains incomprehensible even as we know true things about him. Now the way to make this point is really just to keep making this point over and over because we always want to slide into one option or the other. To simply throw up our hands and say, how can I understand anything about God at all? Well, that's its own kind of pride for God can and does make himself known. But then we want to be tempted to think to make God submit to our minds and to say we can fully comprehend him. We say no, it always remains mysterious and other than us. The catechism is warning us to maintain that balance. Why? Well, let us see. It is for our comfort that the scriptures proclaim and the catechism reminds us of God's transcendent glory that he sits enthroned upon the cherubim. The point here is is that we need both. We need both realities to be clear, both realities to be emphasized, both realities to be enjoyed, and to be a comfort for us. It is a comfort that God is holy and other, that He is the Creator, because it is precisely for that reason that we are confident He is able to do what He promises He will do. It is precisely the Almighty Creator of the universe who is at the same time our covenant God. It's not one or the other. And in fact, Him being our covenant God is a comfort precisely because He is the Almighty Creator of the universe. This is what Psalm 99 is celebrating. I love this language. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. But what is this referring to? Well, it's speaking of the Ark of the Covenant and the cherubim that were on top of the Ark, the Ark being God's throne, which was a picture of the cherubim, these terrifying creatures in heaven, were an expression of God's holiness. And so that language of these terrifying, I like to say monsters, the cherubim, powerful, glorious, frightening, are an expression, really guardians of God's holiness. And so that language of he's enthroned on the cherubim is emphasizing his holiness, his otherness, his, his transcendence beyond us. And yet, enthroned upon the cherubim. Where were those cherubim again? The Ark of the Covenant. In the midst of Israel. 
And so here is the image of God's holiness, His otherness, His glory, His beauty, right in the middle of His people. Where He is saying, this is my intention, to dwell with you, to be present with you. And the glory, the comfort of that, is it is the God who is enthroned upon the cherubim who is present with Israel. Well, how will all of this be possible? Well, this is Emmanuel, God with us, fulfilled in our Lord Jesus Christ. That it is this almighty creator of the universe who has visited us, who is with us in the eternal Son of God, Jesus Christ in his incarnation. And so even Psalm 99 is it celebrating this, this, in a sense, the distance of God from us, celebrates it in terms that emphasizes, and he is with us as his covenant people. Therefore, number three, expect from his almighty power. These two truths teach us to pray with a posture of faith-filled confidence in God hearing and answering prayer. Question answer 121. These words teach us not to think of God's heavenly majesty in an earthly way. And right at this point, as we emphasize God's holiness, his transcendence, many would say, you're making God seem scary. You're making God seem you know, distant and, and far. Why would you do that? Because of the next words of the catechism. And to expect from his almighty power everything needed for body and soul. These truths together teach us to pray with confidence that God hears prayer, that He answers prayer, that He is able to do all that He has promised because He is the sovereign Lord of the universe. And isn't it striking, I think it's striking, that these words teach us to expect this. That is, Christ knows we are tempted to doubt to question this, to fear this, to not think this way that God provides so generously. And so he gives us a prayer to teach us to think this way. Indeed, I love the language of letter A, or letter A, of the answer to question and answer 120. To awaken in us at the very beginning of our prayer. Letter A on your outline. The words to awaken in us are important for understanding why we pray. Have you ever asked the question, why pray? This is a a fun question that will be asked in philosophy classes in Christian colleges. If God is sovereign over all, why do we pray? What difference does it make if it's just, you know, he's going to do what he's going to do? What is prayer even doing? Well, what did our catechism just tell us is one of the things prayer is doing. It is awakening something in us. It's a means by which God is doing something in us and how we orient toward Him and relate to Him. How much more is that the case when the prayer is a prayer given to us by God in Christ, where He says, here, pray this way. And when you pray this, it is to awaken within you something that might not otherwise be there. Do you see how this is the opposite of prayer being the overflowing of something that we already think and feel? Don't we often feel the burden to pray that way. This is prevalent in American Christianity that we learn ways to pray to sound like we're making it up on the spot just to be clear that it's extra sincere. As though somehow not having thought about it ahead of time or having it be a new way of saying something makes it more sincere. In fact, have you ever started to feel bad when you feel like your prayers, you kind of always pray the same thing? Why would we feel bad? Jesus literally said, pray like this. And he gave us words to pray. 
The point being that prayer is not just overflowing of what we already feel. Prayer is us entering into something that then changes us, that changes how we think and feel about God. This is why we pray words that we did not come up with. We don't think and feel about God how we should. We need these words to awaken within us what we ought to be thinking and feeling. So, what is the catechism saying we ought to have, be, have awakened within us at the beginning of our prayer, but confidence that God hears and answers, that He provides? Letter B, God regularly answers our prayers in the way of ordinary providence. I want to sort of um, get to the point here regarding what, what this means about God answering prayer. You are not controlling, manipulating God by your prayers. Rather, God is saying, I provide all, God is saying He provides all things for you, and that one of the ways, one of the means He uses to provide all things is our prayers, and that He wants us in our prayers to be oriented toward Him as the one who provides all good things. Psalm 145, verse 15 and 16. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. This psalm is celebrating that in the way of ordinary providence, in the way of creation, God is answering your desires as His creatures. That your prayer is expressing your confidence that He will continue to do that, and that what is what He does as our God. And so, those words, our Father in heaven are meant to awaken in us, kindle in us, teach us to think of God in that way. Nevertheless, we also know that the experience of unanswered prayer is an experience that God's people have. In fact, other prayers that God has given us, the Psalms, teach us to acknowledge this. Think, for example, of Psalm 13. Verses 1 through 3. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. A psalm expressing the feeling, the experience of feeling as though prayers are not being heard. Prayers are not being answered. And so on the one hand, we say God is constantly answering our prayers. In all that he is doing, in all of ordinary providence, our prayer oriented toward him is acknowledging that he's doing that in response to the prayer. But we also say that there are so often things we pray for that we do not receive. Things we pray about where the answer, where what God does is not what we asked for. Things we pray for and we feel as though the prayer is not being heard at all. The Psalms acknowledge that this is real. And here's the challenge. What our catechism is telling us about being confident that God hears and answers prayer does not contradict that. It includes that within it as being something God's people experience. And it is acknowledged in our catechism's words to expect from His almighty power everything needed for body and soul. We pray to God as the one who knows perfectly what we need for our eternal good. And we pray acknowledging that what we actually want is for Him to act for our eternal good. And that will often be different than what we would ask for. Let us see. The character of God as our Father who is in heaven is both comforting and mysterious. 
Indeed, the doctrine is comforting because it is mysterious. And in my outline, the word because is in italics. So you have to write it in italics somehow. The doctrine is comforting because it is mysterious. Do you sense the mysteriousness in this? That we are, we are told, we, are, we, we, we have cultivated within us the expectation to pray with the anticipation of answer, that God acts in response to our prayers. We see it in ordinary providence, but we also know there are times where it does not feel as though that is happening. Now, part of the path forward is that we all have known the experience, many of you perhaps in ways you can recall right away, of praying for something, of God doing something totally different, and of seeing that you actually were better off with the totally different thing. We know this as an experience. Something we've prayed for, pleading with God, God insisting upon us having to go through a certain thing or walk a certain path or having a certain solution not coming about and then discovering new goods, new blessings on the other side of that that we could not have anticipated or asked for. We've known this, you've heard others speak of it. And so our prayer is including precisely that complexity. But here's why the mysteriousness is so important. We all have things in our life, as I, as I love to remind us when we come to this kind of point, we all have things in our life, things in this congregation that have been experienced, that are broken, that are messed up in a way that you don't even know what to pray for. You, you can't even see what the way forward would be. There are things broken, things that have happened, things that are messed up in a way that I don't even know, I could not even describe what it would be to set it right. You say, you know, if you, could, if you could just ask for anything, have anything, you'd be in charge about this thing that happened in your life. You say, I, I don't even know. I don't, can't imagine how it could be fixed. It's that kind of bad. It's that kind of messed up. Well, here's the key. God's transcendent glory and holiness means He is able to act for your eternal good even in those situations. That He is able to set right, to fix that which we cannot even imagine how we would want it to be fixed. And part of the point in what is being kindled within us when we say, our Father who is in heaven, is to acknowledge that. We acknowledge it humbly. We say, God, your wisdom is perfect, mine is not. Your love is perfect, mine is not. And that's often difficult, right? When you pray for something, you know what you want, and you, you, you know God's plan may be different. That's hard. But it's also comforting. Because we need the promise. We need the creator to be the one who sets things right because only he can. We need the promise of resurrection, of the undoing of death itself, the undoing of the curse itself because only he can do that. Our wisdom, our love, our desires cannot possibly be the answer. And so, yes, it's challenging to acknowledge this that it often feels like God is not answering, that God's going to do something different. And there are so many who would attack that and say, it's like a cop-out. You say, sometimes the answer is just something else. Say, no, this is actually one of the main things we cry out to the Creator for, is for Him to set all things right in a way that only He can, in a way that is beyond what we could even want or desire because of His goodness as the Creator and the one who has made Himself known in Christ. Indeed, letter D. We pray, therefore, confident in God's promise to give us everything needed 
for our eternal good. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of this prayer that we receive as promise that we pray to you as our Father and that we pray to you as the one whose heavenly majesty is not something earthly, that is other, glorious, mysterious, holy, transcendent. All of this we claim as a comfort because you have proclaimed to us in Christ the good news that we are your adopted children. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.